Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Specialty Lens Success Podcast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We will make it worth your while. Today, we are going to the United Kingdom, where our guest, Brian Tompkins, OD, Fellow of the College of Optometry, Fellow of the British Contact Lens Association, is going to share with us many of the elements that make his practice so successful. Even though the optometric market in the UK is somewhat different than the US, you will find many of the elements he has put in place are similar to successful US practices. But there are some new twists. Today you will hear about a 134-year-old Victorian building, a 7,000-pound coffee machine, concierge service, social media, high technology, talented doctors, and great people providing great service, combining to make the magic of one of the most successful practices in England. Dr. Tompkins' practice, Tompkins Knight and Son Optometrists, was founded in 1868 and is located in Northampton, about 70 miles northwest of the heart of London. Dr. Tompkins will tell you that the success of the practice is a team effort, supported by his co-director, Nikki Tompkins, two associate optometrists, Dr. Patel and Dr. Grant, and finally his dedicated staff. This podcast is produced by the fine folks at Eagle Eye. If you think this podcast has value and you want to share it with a colleague, simply use the share link on your podcast player of choice. Check out the show notes for a link to the Tompkins Knight and Sons website. You will also find links to Eaglet Eye where you can learn more about the eye service profiler and schedule a virtual demonstration. Admit it. You're most curious about that 7,000-pound coffee machine. Okay, then let's meet up with Dr. Tompkins and learn more about it. Brian Tompkins, welcome to the Specialty Lens Success Podcast. It is great to have you here, and it's great to get a view from the UK, as opposed to the first several interviews we did, which were all US-based. Well, I, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. And it's something which, uh, it's kind of, we are part of a family. And I've seen a couple, heard a couple of the US-based ones. And those are the gods of the speciality world that I move in and I look to them. So you're coming now to the lower student end from the UK version. So <laughs> something which, yeah, I, I I am honored to be here. I don't think a lot of listeners would agree with your your self-assessment. <laughs> but anyway, your your self-deprecation is appreciated. First, just tell tell us a little bit about your your background and, and your practice. Well I am proud to say that the practice is now 155 years old. Wow. So the practice was started by the family. So the, the, the practice name is Tompkins Knight and Son, and I'm the usurper coming in late to the table uh, with the Tompkins bit. 
and the Knight and Son family, started in 1868 by Alfred Knight, who was a jeweller. And in the UK, opticians at the time, we, we just adore the word optometrist now, and optician is not a title I want to use. Uh, but opticians came from kind of the background of either being a chemist or they came from being a jeweller. And so ultimately, chemists kind of just had the quasi-medical feel around the 1890s, 1880s, etc. cetera. Uh, and jewellers were making gold things and spectacles became part of one they manufactured. Uh, and Alfred was one of the very first in the UK to join the British Optical Association in the 1890s, early 1890s. And the certificate is in the practice somewhere. If this were video, I'd be able to dig it out and show you. And then he had a son. So there was where the knight and son bit of the business came into place. And then Leslie, his son, had two sons, Monty and Ian. They worked the generations through the years, through the war, through everything thick and thin. And I joined Monty, who was the innovator of the whole family uh, group, um, in a practice in central Northampton in 1976. Um, not quite straight from university because we have to do a pre-registration year, kind of like a professional year. Um, so, yeah, 76 and we're now um, 23. So I'm knocking on the door of 50 years of being in the same practice, about 46, 47 at the minute. I started uni in 72. So, yeah, it's 50 years since I've been dealing with the terminology and the joyful world of optometry. That's awesome. It's it's amazing when you think of history and a place like the UK, which has such a history compared to, you know, the United States was a bit younger. <laughs> Just a every, Yeah, everything's younger. But uh, to think that your practice, uh, the practice that you're in was founded in 1868 is just amazing. So let's start with a story. You know, we talked about that when we were preparing for this a, a week ago. And, you know, is there a story that captures the importance of scleral lenses to you or your interest in scleral lenses? Can you share something with us? Well, when I was at university, scleral lenses were one of the usual lenses to be fitted in those days. I mean, these modern fangled things like silicon hydrogels or disposable lenses hadn't been invented. There was no such thing. I kind of started, I don't know why, I started getting interested in contact lenses when I was at uni and my dissertation was at, on lenses at the time, which were well, these newfangled monthly lenses, I think. They weren't even um, you know, disposable to that level. And part of the whole deal was we had to take impressions and we had to take ways to make a, a skill haptic in those days. So... My journey from haptics onwards has been quite a long one. Um, but of course, I essentially joined the modern world, decided that as other lenses, gas permeables, RGPs, softs became cleverer, materials got better, manufacturing got better and better. Uh, and Understand that mine is a general practice. This is not hospital practice, so it's a general practice. Then I moved away from sclerals over the last 40, 50 years on the basis that, no, they were old things. They're, they're, they're kind of not needed anymore. 
Now, I happened to be at university with Ken Pullum. Everybody in the sclerosis world knows Ken Pullum, and he was the year above me. And he was in hospital. He was at Moorfields. And he never, ever stopped fitting sclerals and is the god that he is now. And ultimately, um, when modern scleral materials, fittings, design, and ways to fit them came much to the fore, then ultimately, I think a lot of us are saying, oh, my God, Ken was right all this time. And we thought, thing of the past, and now... 10, 15, 5, 10, 15 years ago, we started realising, oh, maybe he wasn't that stupid all along and maybe he knew what he was talking about. Uh, so I, I, I give a nod to Ken every time we talk about Slurls because he never lost faith. And those of us who started years ago stopped because that wasn't the mode of contact lens practice. In general practice, I now give him the nod that, yeah, he was right and we were wrong. And so we fit them on a very, very regular basis. I mean, I've had a general day of practice today and I've had three scleral fits. Well, Not fits, but I've had three scleral patients in for assessment, reassessment, you know, many things. Now, and I, think I don't you remember talk- whether that was the story we talked about, but it's yeah. certainly a story that comes to mind. Yeah, but I think we also talked about that back in the day when you were first uh, fitting scleral lenses um, at university and and shortly afterwards, you were actually making them yourselves. Oh, yeah. Um, So when I joined the practice, we had a little cellar basement clinic room. And the molding technique in those days, actually almost easier than the molding techniques we use these days, because the, the shell had little micro holes in like a colander. It had a tube which allowed the dental compound, those days dental compound, to go through the tube. So the method we used to put in, we used to anesthetize the eye, put the shell in, put an injection um, syringe into the end, fill a dental compound, squeeze it in, gently pull the shell away. And as it filled, it formed the shape of the eye, it formed the shape of the mold. It, it's, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe they're almost reinvestigating that technique again as a way to get even more challenging eyes. So get the shell into the eye that's tight lids, small fornix, whatever it might be, and then look at injection through. Um, the, the issue with that is in those days it was dental compound, and those days it wasn't CE mark, there wasn't such a thing as CE marking. And I do remember once we picked up the wrong compound at one point, and it was the minty-flavoured one. So the patient's eye <laughs> was a little bit more sore than maybe it should have been that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A nice it, mental, it, fresh taste to the eyeball. <laughs> and, and, for, and for the listeners, the CE mark, if you don't know, if you're an American listener, that's a quality control mark, and it, it manages the control also of... Uh, medical devices um, in Europe now. And then also Moorfields Clinic is a world famous um, eye hospital in London. And um, so it's very well regarded clinic that your colleague worked at. Um, I think think most people in the scleral world will understand where Moorfields is coming from. Sure, Uh, they should. So how did you, how did you first get interested in optometry? Do you know what? I, I, We'll be completely honest. I wasn't smart enough to do medicine or dentistry. It needed a higher university degree. It was that simple. And I, <laughs> I knew I wanted to do medical in some way, shape, or form. And I kind of thought, 
actually, more seriously, after a, a, a guy, he's not much older than me because he's retired now, but he came to school and gave a talk about ophthalmic opticians because we weren't called optometrists in those days. It was ophthalmic opticians. And we were kind of in the stage of school career where we were trying to be choosing university places. And I dropped my glasses out of my blazer coming out of school. Some car ran over him. I had to go and see him. And we sat and chatted long and hard. And that word of mouth from him kind of put me on a path. And then, I mean, if I had my time, I would never go back and do anything else. That There is nothing else that is giving me any form of interest in the way that this glorious profession has given me. You know, back in the day... and. When you get older, you end up saying, in my day. (laughs) Yep. And ultimately, though, we have such a beautiful mix within our profession. Certainly, historically, we would look at mechanics. We would be taught how to manufacture the frames and lenses almost from scratch. We would certainly know how to dismantle frames, repair them, and do all of the, the kind of mechanics. So we had mechanical engineering as part of the degree. We had the anatomy and the biology of the eye, and we had the clinical looking at the eye. So we had all that health side of things. We had the understanding of disease. But we also had fashion because we, for a long time, I helped the patient choose the frames. Once I'd done, I made the engine. I was now forming the bodywork. Mm-hmm. And so it was that whole complete package of everything that's done. I can't afford to do that now on a time basis. Modern optometrists don't know how to do a lot of those old skill sets. But a pair of spectacle frames to a patient is a combination of the skill of getting the refraction and making sure they're going to work clinically, but they've got to sit on your face. They have to Mm -hmm. sit comfortably where they don't pinch your nose or hurt the ear or slide down all the time. So that skill set helped, I think, form the basis of getting everything right for the patient. And a contact lens, particularly a scleral, is kind of the same. You have to get every aspect of the fit into perfection to make it all day wearable, brilliant vision, and comfortable to wear. And then when you were at university, were you studying to be an ophthalmic optician at that time or had it already converted to optometry? No, interestingly, it was called ophthalmic optician. So uh, you know, in, in the UK, there was ophthalmic optician and dispensing optician. And the dispensing optician was the genius who could manipulate and move frames and lenses and choose, et cetera, and design the varifocals. And the ophthalmic optician could do all of that because we had almost all of that in our course as well. Plus, we had to look at the eye and do the refractions and do the um, investigation at the back of the eye, which at that point was an ophthalmoscope, nothing more. No. We didn't have any other techniques than a guessing stick ophthalmoscope. Um, and it's only since then that some of the more modern techniques have come through. So nowadays, the, the students have got so much to learn. I, I've spent the whole day with two optometry students, their second year, and they already know about OCTs. They already know about Optimaps. They already know about um, the clever topographies and stuff that didn't exist back in those days. And then when did when did it shift for you to become an optometrist? Well, I was offered a partnership. It shifted in my mind very early on. I, I kind of engaged with the term optometrist really quite early, straight after uni. Um, and when I joined the practice and was an employee for a time and went into partnership, 
which was 1980, so partnerships since then. Um, I had to build a new brass plaque. We were always in a house practice. There was no shop front. There was no advertising out the front. In those days, you weren't allowed to advertise. So our only advertisement capability was a brass plaque, literally brass. And at that point, when I became a partner, it wasn't a director, it was a partner, it wasn't a limited company, I insisted that the practice was called Knight and Son Optometrists. And that was 1980. And I think at that point, there were no more than a few of us in the whole country of the UK. I don't know when it happened in the US. It could easily have been a long time. And part of my argument to my then late, well, my partner then, bless him, he's died. But um, it, my argument was everywhere else in the world, we're optometrists. Why can't we be an optometrist in the UK? And my passion still is I teach patients the term optometrist and optometry. And it's really sad, but I have to teach my colleagues to call themselves optometrists. Mm. They still call themselves an optician. And no disrespect to my dispensing optician colleagues who still call themselves opticians. We're optometrists and we have a bigger role to play. Okay. Okay. Very. That's fascinating. The history of, of medicine in different places is always um, is really, really fascinating. Okay. So we, we've sort of uh, talked about your practice, the founding in 1868, uh, you're joining the practice, becoming a partner, and the building that you're in now, because this is sort of important to what we're going to get to later uh, in a few minutes, which is marketing, but your building is part of your brand and part of your marketing. When did you move into this building and how old is it? Right. So it's a complicated history. So hang on to your seats or grab your beer. Ultimately, <laughs> The Knight brothers, the grandsons, not from any falling out, but from a business differential, split their two businesses into individual ones. One Monty, one Ian. Let's call it that. And they split because one was inventive and founding, making instruments. He was a diploma of contact lenses, he was a diploma of orthoptics. And the other one was kind of a refractionist who just said, which is better, one or two, one or two, and what colour would you like, black or brown? There was no sparkle in his life and his world. And thank whatever that I didn't join him. I joined the crazy, mad, jocular, singing in the consulting room, making great jokes with the patients kind of guy um, who was just full of life and bon viveur. So we kind of joined him and the other one carried on in a building which is where i am now this building this glorious building is where i am now now what happened was the boring brother decided to retire so the exciting brother and i well i persuaded the exciting brother to buy the business because they'd split businesses back into the fold of the family and join everything up to the Victorian house where we are now became viable. And it was a big decision because it was out of the town, but it had the joy of a car park. It, it hosts 15 cars when you need to. And it's a beautiful place. I'm overlooking the park now. If, if this was vision, I would be able to show you that I'm overlooking a sunny park with people enjoying life. 
Uh, and I, that's my view every day. And so ultimately, 1994, shut the other two, came up to this one. Oh, and it was the most joyful thing to ever do because you can concentrate on the team and train them to the nth degree. And the equipment level, the technology moved up and up and up because every bit only had to be bought once. And he needed that single technological joy that we can play with these days. And so we got more tech, we got more training, we got more dedication. The patients knew where we were. They drove to us. We might have missed a few town people who couldn't get out to this particular location. But let's be honest. The ones who could afford to drive their car here were the ones who came. Now, that, that means the profile of the practice got lifted to the slightly more affluent. We already had quite a, an affluent demographic anyway, and an older demographic, very useful because varifocals cost more than single vision, and they have more disposable income and all the other factors. So we have the most joyful demographic of the original landed gentry, the landowners, we have farmers, we have solicitors, we have accountants. We have the people who don't mind paying, appreciate service, are professionals themselves in many ways. So it, it became the most loyal and fantastic patient base. And I had in a, a girl today with her son, who's the son's now 10. I started looking after the girl when she was two. So wow. we have... Families. I, I, I am now on nearly seeing the grandchildren of people. I, well, I am seeing the grandchildren I saw when they were older, but I'm nearly seeing the grandchildren of babies that were babies when they came to see me. Sure. And um, okay, so what what town are you in, and where is it related to London or some other major city in the UK? We're halfway between Birmingham and London. We're sixty miles north, sixty-five miles north of London, uh, straight up the north. Uh, M1 is the main motorway between up the north and um, other towns like Leeds are another couple of hours further up and Birmingham is to our left and and sort of uh, about another 60 miles. So okay. we're central eastern Midland area. Okay. Okay. I just want listeners to be able to use their imagination and think about where you're, where you're talking from. Yeah. Well, look up, look up Northampton. Um, and then understand that Southampton is very south on the south coast and Northampton isn't. It's not. It should be called Midhampton, but it never was because there isn't anything further north than us. Okay. We're only <laughs> halfway up the UK. So, yeah, have a look. Google search us. Or if there's a link, I'll send you the location. Okay. Now, one thing I want um, listeners to, to to imagine or think about, because I'm here and I'm talking to you. We're, we're on a video, a virtual call, and I can actually see the background and and I can think about what you what you and I talked about the other day. But part of your marketing, in a sense, and part of your brand is this beautiful Victorian building that you're in. And for the listeners, I'm looking into a room that has crown molding in the ceiling, has track lights, has a chandelier. And, you know, you can tell it's a it's an older building. It's very charming. And in the middle of this is modern technology. So uh, just to when I'm facing uh, Brian, but just to the right of Brian, I I see the eaglet eye. I see a slit lamp. I might be seeing I don't know if I see a pentacam back there. Uh, no, pentacam's in another room. So we've got the K5 in this room. Okay. Oculus topographer and dry eye master kit, the K5. We've got a video slit lamp because you cannot 
anybody with a slit lamp without a camera or video attached is just back in the dark ages now. You have to educate and edutain the patient. We spend our whole day not looking down the eyepieces, but looking at the screen and making sure the patient can see what you're doing once you've videoed and captured everything. So today I've looked at a brand new scleral patient who I could show the lens was touching and it's also a 700 micron thick lens. So it's an old style lens. It's not a modern lens. Wow. I've had um, a patient with some dry eye management. I could show the staining and I showed her where it was and it was her under blink causing it. I've showed a new keratoconic who didn't know what a keratoconus looked like because she's had a lens for 20 odd years. She's had countless appointments and no one has demonstrated what her eye looks like without the lens in to show why keratoconus is such a challenge to fit. I've showed her the eaglet eye. There's one in the background. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I see that. I see the eaglet image on the screen in the background. Yeah. yeah. So, and that shows how the profile of the eye can be, be now captured because of ESP right out to 24, 25 millimeters. And that's, so elucidating to the patient to understand their body. So I, I, it, it riles me. Uh, maybe it's not an American word, but it it, it kind of brings me brings my hackles up to think that patients are being seen by really clever, qualified people, and they're not told what is wrong with their own body. You right. can't go to the doctors and say, "Oh, I've got an." issue doctor and they say you've got this and you say would you mind telling me what it is they tell you what it is you understand you comply better with any instructions you understand that this fitting process is not going to be an easy one we're going to go a long journey we go on that journey together holding hands and I never let them go further on that journey without the handhold and I never ever let go at making sure they are finally happy before I wave them into the sunset. Sure. I like that term, edutain. Um, I've not heard that before. I'm sure other people have used it, but... Um, I, I'm globally known as the edutainer when I'm on stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen you in, entertain and edutain before, so I agree with that. But the fact that, on a serious note, the fact that you take that mental approach to a patient to help build that relationship, build that trust. But, but you have to have like the, like the monitor screen available to do it on and to share that information with a patient, regardless what instrument you're using. Yeah. One of the students said to me today that he'd never heard the way that we can or can't help a patient explained so carefully to that patient. Expectation management is our absolute need. It, it is our forte in the practice. So we can promise certain things to a keratoconic, for example, about what their vision is going to be. But honestly, if we cannot get them to what their expectation is, we have to tell them from the outset because, I mean, it's it's jargonistic and it's used countless times, under-promise, over-deliver, over mm -hmm. like that. I, you just have to manage that patient and understand that they're looking for help. They are often giving a cry for help, and we are there to mop up their tears. Right. And to take this back a little bit further, we you know we and we talked about this the other day, is – one of your 
biggest brand and marketing efforts is really to give the patient an outstanding experience in a beautiful location. So it's almost like they're walking into a, a bit of a spa kind of environment. But tell us about the experience of a patient from, you know, I don't know if it's from the first phone call they have or when they walk through the door. Well, tell us what you're trying to achieve there. Yeah, well, we're trying to give them the experience from almost the website when they first might look at us that we, right. the Victorian building it was built in 1889 or something of that nature. I can't remember now. So it's got traditional features. As you say, I work very much in the traditional consultory room, big bay windows overlooking a park. Often the, the blinds are up, which are electric blinds. It's nothing cooler than sitting in your chair and you want a bit of light, you open the blind and it just goes. And right. <laughs> but about 12 years ago, we modernized the back into a contemporary frame gallery. It's not a sales area. It's not a showroom. What well, kind of is a showroom? But it's the frame gallery. And we've got a, something like a seven or eight thousand pound coffee machine to give the best experience. So much so that when they arrive and the team sit them down and they welcome them, we've already got a questionnaire, an OSDI and a questionnaire of lifestyle needs before they come in the practice. We've already quite often done a video conference with a new complicated patient because there's no point in them coming here to us with an expectation of having scleral lenses fitted if we don't know their main problem. So rather than just them turning up and you taking a long history while they're sitting here drinking the coffee, which is fine, you're wasting that time. You can do that by video. So modern video techniques will allow us to meet the patient, meet and greet the patient. They get to see my ugly face if they're going to deal with me going forward. I get to see them. And I'm sneakily looking whether they're going to be easy to scan, easy to mold. Are they tight-lidded? Are they narrowly-lidded? I even get them sometimes to open their eyelids in front of the camera to see how easy an application might be, how easy is it going to be to do things. And you're building that relationship. And I, I truly believe we as optometrists have to be actors a lot of the time because today I had a very long-standing patient, quite disabled. She came in and I had to hold her hand the whole way through. And one flirts a little bit with those because one is making them feel comfortable. There was then the farmer who think he knows best. And so one is quite firm in saying, this is what we're going to do. And we cannot do it any other way, John, whatever it might be. And so one, one characterizes your patients and you characterize yourself to match the way that patient works. So they come in, they meet it, they're met, they're greeted, they are given the best coffee, even to the point that we logo the cappuccino with chocolate dusting with Sclerals Rock or Ortho K Rocks or the company logo, and all the team know how to make a decent coffee, pre-warm the cup on the steamer. It's it's just part of the service. Today it's sunny, gloriously sunny. We are 25 degrees. And the patients have been sitting on the terrace. So we've taken them cold drinks on the terrace. We've got little cheeky bottles of Prosecco if they want a little drink before they come in or when they're choosing their frame. Imagine taking them outside in the sunshine with a bottle of Prosecco, a miniature, and they have a little drink while they're choosing their frames. I've noted proportionate to the level of Prosecco that they choose better frames. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> that's smart marketing. You know, that's, that's taking them to that further level. So, 
Yeah, we are giving an image. The back has a very, very big, the whole contemporary area's got open glass, lots of light. And we have a, a display artist come in and change the terrace decor. And the latest one is we have 10 children's swings hanging from the balcony. Uh-huh. Those, those swings sway in the breeze. And the logo, which he he puts graphically across the big windows all the time, is swing into summer. So we're swinging into summer. We're promoting sunglasses. We are promoting uh, the fresher colours, the lighter fashions. All of that is part of the marketing. It is in-house. It is building that relationship. It is creating. It's making them friends, Mm -hmm. part of the family. And over those 40 years, with those children bringing their children now, every day for me is like going to a cafe, chatting to my mates, talking about eyes, giving them a little bit of knowledge about themselves, and let's be honest, taking a little bit of money because of it. Sure. So this this system that you have of, like, from the first – and your website is beautiful – um, and I'll have a link in the show notes to the website so people can go there and, and see your website and get a feeling a little bit of what we've been talking about. But this process, whether they started the website and then they may have, uh, depending on who they are, they may have a virtual call with you or one of your colleagues. Um, and then they they have to come in, they have to talk to somebody at the front desk. Is this all something that is institutionalized in like written policy or is it more of a tradition that has been created and your staff just you've picked the right people and they know how to keep it going yeah i mean we pick for personality rather than training so the guys that we've got are friendly happy people who like to make a coffee for a patient and you know pass the biscuits around and all of those things so we're far better getting somebody who's the person that we want to have in the practice, and then we train them to play with the toys, do the technology, and do other things. You can't train personality. You can train optometry. I like that very much. You can't train personality. You can't. Uh, exactly. And then do you, if, do you have much turnover? If you have happy people and they fit in the practice, I imagine you might not have a lot of turnover. Uh, Joe, who's our main... Um, Admin girl is 20 years service. Our main DO is 15. Uh, my optometry colleagues are 15 and 10. Um, the latest employee, uh, the other one is like six or seven. Uh, the latest employee we've got was an apprentice who we took on as an apprentice training scheme. And then when she finished her apprenticeship, we kept her on. Uh, she's been with us three years. So now we don't have a high turnover. Okay. And how big in, in a practice like yours? I'm I'm thinking the United States. Um, a pretty active, let's say, two optometrists practice or three optometrists practice, they might have, um, well, our insurance and stuff is different. Um, so, but which takes staff, back office type of people, but they might have eight people working for them. Well, we um, in total have nine. Nine. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, you so have, have yourself, you have yourself, and you have two other optometrists. You, we have three colleagues. optometrists, yeah, three. And, and, and all of those, well, three in total, two others. So yeah. um, each of us has got a kind of an enjoyment of one particular speciality, for example. Okay. So my, 
mine hopefully is contact lenses because I can't do much else. And so because I am the kind of old guy who's been around a long time doing the contact lenses, then some of the speciality stuff comes to me. But my brilliant colleague, Dr. Kerr Patel, who was trained in Boston after his optometry degree in the UK. So he did um, the College of New England uh, three years there. So he's IP trained, he's glaucoma trained, he can do all the drug things that I can't do because I never did and it's kind of too late for me now. Um, so dry eye management, therapeutics and IP and infection control, et cetera, et cetera, is done by Dr. Patel. Uh, I'm the kind of more contact lens side of things and Dr. Patel helps with that. So he does some as well. And then we have this genius, genius optometrist called Deborah, who's very nearly IP as well, but she's very much concentrating on the children and the binocular vision. She's a behavioral optometrist, does vision therapy training. She does sports vision training. Um, she's uh, passionate about myopia management. So all three of us do myopia management. All three of us do like standard binocular vision and things that you would normally do with an optom. But if we get a complicated BV type of problem, we all pass it on to Deborah. She's just genius with it. Okay. And then when you and we have, sorry, and then we have a dispensing manager and a practice manager, both dispensing opticians, both qualified. One was UK dispensing optician of the year at one point. Um, we have a super technician. He's, he's just genius. He's um, been with us a long time. Uh, it's hard to move into another role because he's so good at what he does, uh, but he's excellent at all the OCT, all the Pentacam, all the myopia master, which is the, Axial length. I don't know if you've got it in the US, I think. So, my OP Master is a combination of axial length, um, auto refractor, uh, um, and um, keratometer. So, kind of a, a topography. So, it's a combination of all those things, but very much aimed at my OP management, which we do a lot. Um, we use MPI, which is a macular pigment uh, measuring device. We have Optimap, OCT, Fields, TLAB, Inflamadry. So the tech does our IPL, he does our Inflamadry and, and TLAB measurement, measuring, et cetera. We then have two main receptionists front of house who also can double up in the tech room so they can do all of the things that the main technician can do if he's not there. Uh, we've got a back office, we've got a director, my wife, who's at home doing a lot of the kind of um, detail stuff because I hate details. I, I, it's well, more blue sky for me um and then we have a bookkeeper and yeah it's kind of nine or ten in total depending on who's in it on any given day sure sure and then do you have like strategic meetings at all ever like a, where you get the whole uh, well, i should be in it now so every wednesday evening afternoon there is a strategic meeting go on that we have board meetings of the directors every month and we have dispensing and and kind of frame gallery meetings uh separate entities uh, okay. and we have uh, and this is a modern world we have a whatsapp group for the team we have a whatsapp group for the clinicals and we have a whatsapp group for the marketing team because outside of the practice my son eldest son is a marketeer and a graphic designer so all of our logoing all of the website is all done by him and his team and it, it Okay, you'd think, oh, it's just you're suddenly going to use him, but he's just bloody brilliant. He's mm -hmm. just one of the most creative graphic designer and creators that we do. And many people who've seen any of the videos I've seen on stage, any of the 
website design, any of the T-shirts I wear on a regular basis, they're all designed through his company. And we have a PR agent who isn't with us, but we've used that agency a long time. He knows us. So we use PR, we use marketing, we use graphic design, we use social media on an incredibly regular basis. And all of that is modern marketing. And is there like a, a so there's a little, some kind of a plan behind like the social media? This is how we're going to go into Instagram. This is how we're going to go into LinkedIn or no, we Facebook. Kind of, we tend to do it more as it comes. Both Dr. Patel and myself do any interesting cases, but try and put them over in a fun way. If you follow Optomegeek, O P T O M E G E E K, at Optomegeek and at BT Optom. Uh, we have different styles of how we present, but we're different personalities. That's how it should be. Kaya's posts on LinkedIn and Kaya's posts in Instagram and Facebook are legendarily brilliant clinical pieces. I tend to bring a little, this doesn't sound right, but I tend to bring a bit more fun into it and less clinical, more personal interactive. So we've just posted about the students being here today. Um, Deborah's posts on educating parents on binocular vision were utterly stunning. So follow the BV girl and you will get amazing, amazing teachings. I learned from it, let alone the parents. And she does it in such a clever way. So we use all of that to clinically put ourselves out there. We use it to promote. We've got one of the team doing... Um, the Saturday focus and the Friday fun fact and things along those lines. But we have a regular post from our PR guy. Uh, so anything like myopia week or glaucoma day or any of those things he picks up and runs with and does some standard posts and then we post around it. Okay. So there is sort of a, a structure and a plan that you're following. Like, like you said, the Friday facts or whatever you called it. I mean, so it sounds like some of it is structured and planned, and then some of it is just the nature of the people in the practice are, hey, this is good. I'm going to put this out in social media. And then so your patients are seeing it, and then also referring um, uh, colleagues are seeing this stuff. Yeah, and we do Christmas competitions, and we'll do um, open days here and there. And so we'll get in a Tom Ford day or a Maui Gym day, and we'll get in things along those lines and promote that on the website in the in the practice. Um, you know, so lots of things along those lines. It's 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 normal stuff for an optometric practice, I imagine. Sure, and so really, what we're talking about here is how you enhance. Uh, word of mouth, you know, you have a great patient experience and then you take some of these experiences or some of these re results and you, you uh, market them to essentially support the practice, bring more patients in. And, you know, I, I've always believed that patients are also proud of the practice they go to. In other words, yeah. They're, yeah, they're and they tell other people like I go to the best optometrist. You know his name's Brian Tompkins. Beautiful place. Get a yeah. cup of coffee. You know my glass is always perfect or my lens is always perfect. People like to be proud of what, the decisions they make and the people they see. No, they do. They do. And and that's kind of how we are. 
I, I, one thing I haven't mentioned is our fee structure, and I don't know if that's relevant to this meeting, this podcast, or whether you want a to. A little bit because you're you are an independent practice. You're not, like you said, part of a hospital, and you're competing to some degree with some elements of the NHS. Yeah, and for a long time, every optician optometrist in the UK was part of the National Health Service, and. The problem is that was designed, built, and probably about the price of 1948. Mm -hmm. 1948. And it is no longer fit for purpose. And so we are paid for an NHS exam. Well, we used to be paid because we left the service, but we are paid for um, an NHS exam, £22. Hmm. That will take us half an hour. My practice runs at £200 for half an hour. Yeah. And we're paid 20 So COVID pushed us and many others over the edge of saying, cannot long, any longer do the National Health Service. We can't see patients. So we went private. We went private, but we also went totally care plan. And care plan means everybody pays a monthly fee, like Netflix, like Amazon Prime. They pay a monthly retainer fee to look after, to have their eyes looked after. And that fee varies whether you're a spectacle wearer, a child of five, an adult of 90, a complex scleral wearer, or a simple daily wearer. And we, we have a structure of fees, and everybody's on a plan. So I'm sitting here. We closed relatively early so that the staff could have their meeting. I could do this webinar, stroke podcast. and money is still trickling into my bank through everybody's bank transfer without me doing anything. If I get invited to the US or New Zealand or wherever and I'm out of the country, money still trickles through into my bank through regular payments in. Every single day, payments come in from people's accounts just because they join that plan. What percent of your revenue do you think is coming in that way? I'm not a money person. Um, <laughs> Where's your wife when we need her? <laughs> yeah, well, it kind of is that, and and any of the team who do the finances, I kind of finance like a guess. I can't even guess that. Um, I, I don't know. We may have to add an addendum to it. To be honest, Ted, I can't think at the minute. Um, Still, it's a major initiative at the practice to do yeah, this. It's a long-standing one. Yeah, and, uh, and in the United States, I think this is fascinating. I don't. Maybe there are optometrists doing this in the United States. I don't, I've not run into one, and my no, dentist does it. No, you have an insurance system, but we don't. There is no yeah. insurance system that does optometry in the UK. So we can't do that. But so, for example, in the United States in dentistry, the insurance is so bad for dentistry that many of us, like myself and my wife, we dropped our insurance and instead went to an annual payment to our dentist that covers certain things and yeah. gives us a discount on others. I, I just wonder, we, we have, we see private practitioners doing um, concierge practice where you pay a monthly fee and you can call the doctor up anytime and get in and it's part of the monthly fee. It is I, exactly I wonder, that. I wonder I, if it I like would, that. it's a concierge plan. Yeah. Yeah. Then okay. It's, That's it's the, being, so, Every bit of tech that we have 
other practices struggle because they have to charge £50 for an OCT, £40, whatever the numbers are, doesn't matter. Right. My patients, and this engenders such loyalty, this engenders a desire, as you said earlier, to belong to the best practice, but they're paying to make it the best practice. Sure. They're helping my business. They are paying a, a reasonable fee. It's not the same as US fees because it isn't as much. But for the UK, we are still one of the more expensive practices out there because we have included everything in everybody's plan. So we can do OCT on a five-year-old, a 95-year-old, a contactless patient, a spectacle wearer, a perfect emetrope. We can do, we do do. Every year we do OCT, we do Optimat, we do everything that is needed on every patient. No equipment is held back because they're not paying enough. Everybody joins and everybody gets everything. That's that's really interesting. Uh, that's fascinating. And you and I didn't talk about that at all when we were preparing for this, but I think that's a very interesting uh, piece of information. Do you know what um, it gives me? It gives me two things. It gives me the opportunity to know that my patients are super loyal love coming, like belonging to the practice, they're part of the family, and they pay for that privilege. They pay to get the very best insults. Yep. And it means that they're contributing to my business. And it means that they're the best patients. They mean that they believe that what they get is the best service, and they tell their friends. And we are approximately 10% new patients. So we're not putting people off by being that high-end, um, different model to most UK practices. Right. Brian, tell us about the towel. What do you call it? The happy tears towel. Happy tears towel. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a slightly weird um, thing, but the BCLA last weekend, there was a stage show we'll call it where to put a different aspect on optometry they did a shark tank versus in the uk we call it dragon center i think us it's called shark tank right and they did a optometry shark tank effectively but it was called gladiator pitch so i had to be a gladiator and pitch an idea to the gladiators to see if it would work now anyone Everyone in speciality contact lenses knows that we make people cry. We make people cry because we put things in their eye. Okay, jocularly, that's true. But we make people cry because we'll frequently give them vision that hasn't been there for 20 or 30 years. Right. Transform and change their lives and give vision they didn't have, haven't had, and haven't seen. So one of the things I learned very early on when it was before scrubs i'm wearing scrubs nowadays post-covid but before i used to wear really smart suits and the bloody shoulder of the suit would have tear stain stains all down the corner because these patients would cry on my shoulder give me a hug and say thank you thank you thank you and <laughs> so i'd always then throw a towel over my shoulder as they came for the hug and i invented the happy tears towel because <laughs> hashtag happy tears so I don't know if you've got a picture. I can send a picture later on. But ultimately, I pitched a Happy Tears towel for the gladiators to see if it would become a viable practice.
focus device more important than an OCT or a topographer. Very, very good. What was the reaction? Uh, the reaction was good. They, they, they enjoyed my compassionate, my heartfelt, my going into acting mode now. They enjoyed my um, really emotive plea for them to join in a happy tears towel. Um, but it didn't win. Etty Bitten got it. Uh, yeah, anyway, so but hey. <laughs> that's good. Thank you very much. That's that's excellent. I I don't want to take too much more of your time, but if you were to put uh, maybe a different hat on and try to imagine yourself being a, a practitioner that is starting to get more involved in specialty lenses and and wants to make it a, a an important part of the practice, any advice for these people? Visit every single conference you can meet all of the gurus out there buy them beer they'll tell you the pearls and you'll gain knowledge like there's no tomorrow we all know that at conferences that half the best information comes when you're chatting over a beer later on that afternoon and i've enjoyed every single conference i've ever been to starting as a lowly youngster not knowing anybody to now knowing a lot enjoying the company of many and learning every single time I visit anybody. So if you're a youngster, and I said this to the students, they came to the BCLA this last weekend, and they came to me because I'd met them and because I chatted, and I gave them clinical pearls, life pearls, educational pearls. And I'm knocking on the door of 70. I'm not going to stop learning. At this point, I'll go to any of the gurus in the speciality world, and I'll sit down with them, and we'll chat, chew the cud, and generally learn from each other. And yeah, it's meet the best people and you will never fail. Yeah, I mean, you can put this into the podcast. Any any colleagues traveling across the UK, if they don't come and see us, I'll be pissed. Yeah, they're, they're, there is always an open invitation to colleagues and family of the speciality world to come and visit this beautiful practice You'll get a great coffee. We'll go out for a beer, take the dog for a walk. We'll enjoy chewing the fat about speciality lenses across the pond. Okay. I'll make sure that offer's out there. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fascinating. We've really covered a lot of ground, and we've talked about things that I, I haven't really talked about with my um, other guests so far. So this will be this will be really interesting for the listeners. Thank you so well, much. Well, I mean, it is a UK perspective. And so I understand that it may not be as interesting. Uh, but ultimately, end of the day, the best thing, if you want to learn more from me, get me over to the US. I'll come and sit with a beer with you any day. That's fine. Okay. Very good. <laughs> well, thanks again, sir. Take okay. care. All right. Hey, Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, okay, most practices don't have room for a 7,000-pound coffee machine. But that isn't the point, is it? The point is that there may be something you can do to really differentiate your practice. Of course, the best foundation of a practice is excellent eye care. But you can top that off to make sure that your patients have a pleasantly memorable experience. Your differentiating elements can also be marketed to your referring doctors. And what did you think of the concierge service? Is anyone in optometry doing this? I think there are a few. It was fun and informative to talk to Brian about his practice in the UK. 
Thanks for spending time with us today. Until next time, 